You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our text of 1 Corinthians 11, let us turn for our scripture reading to a somewhat parallel passage. We turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold apparels or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, over the last several years we've been working our way slowly through the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And in doing so, we have now come to chapter 11. It's a chapter that begins a whole new section in this particular epistle, a section filled with quite a few controversies. First, as we shall see, there is a controversy with regard to worship. Thereafter, there is a controversy with regard to the Lord's Supper. Thereafter, there is a controversy with regard to spiritual gifts. And hence, during the next number of weeks, we will be dealing with some thorny issues and some vexing disagreements in that ancient church. However, what is at stake in these issues and disagreements also has all sorts of applications and implications for us today. So let us turn and read together our text of this morning. You find it in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 2 and ending at verse 16. Where the word of our God through the Apostle Paul comes to us and he says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. 
If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, a woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now that's quite a text, right? It's long. It's difficult. And above all, it's controversial. Indeed, what are some of you not thinking? Perhaps things like, the Apostle Paul is out to lunch. Or as a woman, after reading this, I feel really inferior. Or tomorrow morning, I'm going to go out and buy myself a hat to wear to worship. Or I had better get a haircut. Or I'd better let my hair grow long. You see, one after the other, the questions and the comments come tumbling out. This is a hot topic. But as I said, it's also difficult. Why, to a very large extent, this is counter-cultural. There is a lot here that goes against much of modern ways of thinking and acting. Many unbelievers, when they read these words, react to them with scorn. Yes, and even in the church, there are members who do not know what to do with these words, how to understand them, much less how to apply them. So there is this need to read these particular words, to wrestle with them, to pray over them, to strive to understand them, and then to apply them too. After all, we believe that also this part of the word of our God is normative for our lives today. Well, beloved, let us seek to do all of that with the help of the Spirit this morning. I pray to you on the following theme, how are men and women to conduct themselves in public worship. Paul's answer involves, first of all, a special principle that needs to be realized. Secondly, a specific practice that needs to be refuted. And finally, a spiritual picture that needs to be recognized. Well, beloved, it's quite obvious the Apostle Paul begins our text with a compliment. He writes, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. 
And as such, this is a general statement. On the whole, the church of Corinth seems to have been mindful and sensitive to the needs of the apostle. On the whole, it's also faithful in terms of adhering to many of the things that the apostle has taught them. And so the apostle Paul begins by praising them for their faithfulness. But nevertheless, this faithfulness to his teaching does not apply to everything and everyone. For in Corinth, there is also a lot of dissent. As a matter of fact, there is considerable disagreement and discord on any number of issues. Pastoral leadership, as we saw, is one of them. Shall we follow Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ? Church discipline has been another issue. Think of the man who was sleeping with his stepmother and how the church mishandled that one. Christian behavior is also an issue. Why in the world are some of them suing others? So in the church of Corinth, they have all kinds of issues. Yes, and they also have issues when it comes to worship. Just how should men and women worship in the church of God? How should they carry themselves, conduct themselves, What are they doing and what kind of messages are they sending? Now there are some scholars and preachers who question whether or not Paul is really dealing with worship here. However, I would say to you, a careful reading seems to confirm this. Paul, for example, speaks repeatedly about the fact that his comments relate to praying and prophesying. And I would say, if this was a private activity, why would he even bother to go into the matter? After all, if people are praying and prophesying in private, it doesn't really impact directly on the church as such, nor on the church's reputation. So in my view, the comments relating to what his comments relate to what is going on in the church, and specifically to what is going on in the worship of the church. Now, in connection with that worship, he then proceeds to lay down a specific or special principle. You find it in verse 3. Now, I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God. Now, what does he mean with those words? Well, note that there is something in common in all of these words, and that is the use of the term head or headship. So what is headship? And again, that too has been a point of some controversy, as scholars have argued for a long time over the meaning of the word head or kephala in the Greek language. And for many centuries it was assumed that head means to have authority over. But then along came the 20th century and along came the feminist movement as well. And certain scholars began to equivocate and wonder, well, maybe it means source or origin as well or in addition to. And that in turn led to a huge word study being done which came to the conclusion that really in the Greek language there is no foundation for translating kephala or head as source. 
but only as authority over. And since that huge study has been done, not much dissent has been heard. So getting back to Paul's words, what he is saying is that Christ is in a position of authority over every man, every person. And a woman is under the authority of the man. And Christ is under the authority of God. Now you will understand for the Apostle Paul to say that every man is under Christ is really not all that controversial. As Christians, we readily accept that he is our Lord and our King before whom we bow and to whom we give worship and praise. And next to say that Christ is under the authority of God is somewhat more controversial and has to be understood in a special way. This doesn't mean that in terms of his being, Christ is under God the Father, but rather that with respect to his role as Savior, Mediator, Redeemer, he's under authority. As he himself says so often during his ministry, I have come to do the will of my Father. In coming to earth, in working on earth, he placed himself under the authority of his Father and our Heavenly Father. But then we come to the third part of the statement, and that is where the excitement begins. For Paul to say that the head or authority of the woman is man. Now those are deemed to be fighting words. In some circles it's enough to get some women to rise up and shout insults at the preacher. If you don't like the message, you shoot the messenger. But that's not all. But you can read on and you can see that the Apostle Paul makes matters even worse. In verse 7 he writes, Man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now some women read this and they go ballistic. What a demeaning thing for the Apostle Paul to say. My husband derives his image and his glory from God while I have to derive my glory from my, excuse me, goofy husband? How dare the Apostle Paul say this? But yet before your blood pressure goes to the roof, you need to read on. For the Apostle Paul grounds his controversial words in a historical fact. In the verses 8 and 9, he says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And of course there the Apostle Paul is referring to Genesis 2 and about how God made man first about how man was lonely and out of sorts, about how God put him to sleep, about how God made a woman from his side, and then about how God presented the woman to the man. In other words, Paul is saying that the principle of man's headship over a woman 
is grounded in the very fact of creation. This is not social convention. This is not human invention. No, this is how God determined and ordered things in the very beginning. Does that then give a man a right to run roughshod over his wife? Can he say to her in a fit of anger, you're only second-rate woman, or you're inferior to me? Not at all, for read on again. And this time, look at the verses 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. And that's the Apostle Paul's way of saying there is no justification for feelings of either inferiority or superiority. What we need to realize is that what we have here is a created reality that needs to be realized and accepted. The principle is that a wife is under the authority, the headship of her husband. And the rationale rests for this in creation and in how God made them male and female. And the safeguard against abuse here lies in the interdependence of man and woman. They need each other, Paul says. They're made for each other. While a woman lives, or wife lives, under the authority of her man or husband, a man lives under the daily realization that his very life comes from woman. And together they confess and they acknowledge that everything ultimately comes to them from God. Taken as a whole, Christianity is not a religion that victimizes women. But Paul writes in his entirety, does not put them down in the Gentile world of his day. A woman had no rights whatsoever. And a man could simply look at his wife as an extension of the rest of his property. In the Jewish world of his day, the woman had to sit on one side of the synagogue and the men sat on the other side and there was a barrier in between. And in addition, if a Jewish husband didn't like something about his wife, Maybe her cooking or her looks or whatever. You could simply divorce her and be rid of her. But a woman couldn't do that to an owly, disagreeable husband. But then, beloved, along comes Christianity. And the Apostle Paul, and what happens? Yes, there is a reminder of creation and of the principle of submission, but there is also elevation. The wife is compared to the church, and the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. 
Husbands are commanded to love their wives as their own bodies. And husband and wives are called joint heirs together of the grace of life. True enough, their roles differ. But these differences may never serve as a basis for insensitive treatment, callous or careless disregard, macho talk or behavior, or selfish conduct. Indeed, the differences that exist between the sexes are to be applauded and embraced with gusto. Husbands, you may be the head, but you're not the dictator. But then, beloved, having reiterated a certain biblical principle here, the Apostle Paul goes on in our text to deal with a certain practice or development in the church of Corinth. If you go back to the verses 4, 5, and 6, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Now what does that mean? What does that refer to? Well, you could say here the Apostle Paul is moving from principle to practice, from what you may call a universal principle to a particular practice. For it would appear that in his day, and especially in Corinthian society, there were certain conventions and customs that had to do with hair and with deportment. For example, men were not supposed to have long hair or to cover their heads. And if they did so, that was considered in those days to be demeaning. And at the same time, for a woman to have short hair was considered to be degrading. As a matter of fact, we know today that the only women in the city of Corinth who had short hair or who walked around with their heads uncovered were either prostitutes or loose women or both. But now what had happened in the church of Corinth? It would appear that when the church was gathered together for worship, some women came in with no head covering on, and they then proceeded to pray and to prophesy. Apparently, they wanted to make a statement. They wanted to assert themselves, and probably they wanted to assert their newfound freedom in Christ. But note, Paul will have none of it. He says that what they are doing is dishonoring. They're snubbing their noses at God's creation ordinance regarding headship, and at the same time they are causing offense in the church and scandal in the world. 
And notice in that connection also the words of verse 10, for this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Two things here. First, Paul brings in the angels. Why does he do so? Well, it would seem that he brings them into the picture because angels are regarded almost everywhere as the ultimate servants. They never do their own thing or go their own way. They're not out to promote their own agendas or to try to force the community of faith to go in a certain direction. No, angels serve. They do God's bidding. They respect His will. They serve His people. And they're selfless in their devotion. Yes, and as such, these rebellious women in the church at Corinth, Paul is saying, should take a page out of their book and imitate them. Instead of offending the angels, they should honor them and seek to be like them. So first, Paul is referring to the angels here in verse 2. But then notice, secondly, he speaks about a woman having a sign of authority on her head. You can also translate a symbol of authority. In any case, the point is that when a woman prays and prophesies, she needs to do this in such a way that she shows that she is under submission. And in the Corinthian society at that time, the best way to do that was to pray and to prophesy with her head covered. Now some commentators think this refers to a veil. However, that's doubtful since a veil tends more to cover the face than the head. But rather what is most likely meant here is to have the head covered with a shawl or with a a napkin of one kind or another. You see, in that way, when she prays and prophesies, it will not be interpreted as a sign of revolution, but rather as a sign of piety and as an act that that shows that she acknowledges while she is praying and prophesying the headship of man. Now I realize that still today there are those who say that women need to wear a head covering or a hat when they enter the church of Jesus Christ in order to worship. But to me that indicates a failure to distinguish between principle and practice. You know, if still today in our time and in our society a hat or a shawl or a napkin or whatever you have, if those kind of things symbolize submission, and if the absence of those things in our world indicated rebellion, then I would agree. And I would say, all of the ladies, you better go out and buy a hat tomorrow at Sears or wherever you can find it. But you know, that's not the way it is today. 
Wearing a hat today is more of a way of standing out and making a fashion statement and probably an old-fashioned fashion statement of that. So what would then be proper practice in the church at Corinth at that time? It would be to pray and prophesy respectfully and submissively. Meaning to do so while having one's head covered. Well now, beloved, after having taken note of all of that, we can see that a picture is starting to emerge that we need to recognize. And it's a picture in which women are submissive and in which women recognize, and that applies to us today, still recognize the created order. But it's also something else. It's a picture in which men recognize that they are men and women show and recognize that they are women. In this regard, Paul uses words like proper and the very nature of things. He, he says, for example, in verse 14, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? And he also adds in verse 15, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given her for a covering. Now I realize that again, those are the kind of statements that raise more questions. How long is long? Is it above the collar, below the collar? Is it down to the shoulders, beyond the shoulders? But you know, I don't think we should get caught up in all those kind of debates. Instead, the question here is this. Is there still today as God created everything in the beginning, a clear demarcation between the sexes? Do we still accept that men are supposed to look and act like men? And do we still believe that women are supposed to look and act like women? You see, in Corinth, the lines were being blurred. And sometimes it was hard to tell who was who, and what was what, and which was which. And I would say that in our day, we are starting to have increasingly the same kind of problem. We have today what are called metrosexuals. That is, men who like to put on feminine ways, hair, dress, nail polish, perfume, and you name it. And think too of the popularity of gay parades in which men strut around looking like women. And what about homosexuality in which one goes beyond appearance and partakes of sexual acts with members of the same gender? Beloved, once society fails to recognize the creator-creature distinction, And once it begins to ignore the will and the acts of God in terms of creation, all manner of distortions and corruptions follow. 
Therefore, it's no surprise that the Apostle Paul warns against this. His message is back to creation. Back to the way God made things in the beginning. Back to headship. Back to proper decorum in the church of Jesus Christ. Back to proper distinctions between the sexes. As he adds, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. Nor do the churches of God. And with this, with these words, he is stressing that his teaching is not up for debate or discussion. And what he is presenting is the practice not just of the church of Corinth, but also of the churches everywhere. In the churches of Jesus Christ, there is no other way than to recognize what God did in the beginning. What God has renewed and restored in Christ. And what God is doing today in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit. So, beloved, as we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, remember that God's will and God's word reveals the right way, the best way, and indeed the only way to live together as male and female, husband and wife, as church of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.